We, though, as a family, have been studying. We do expositional preaching through books of the Bible. We are in 1 Samuel together. We are going to be looking at chapter 11. We finished chapter 10 last week. Today, we pick up at chapter 11. There are Bibles in the back. I'm going to dismiss the kids now for Children's Church. And then we can open up together to 1 Samuel chapter 11. What I'm going to do is, rather than read the, the, the verses now, I'm going to read them as we launch into each piece, and we're going to do four, four headings um, this, this, uh, this morning, and I'll read the scripture as we go through God's holy uh, inspired word. So that's what I'll do. I'll read it once we get there. But let me, for just a few minutes, bring everybody up to speed really quickly. Samuel, we know the book was named after a man named Samuel, was the last judge of Israel. He was from the tribe of Levi, and therefore he's not only a judge, he's a priest. And in chapter 3, this priest and judge is called into his prophetic office, and he is a prophet. Prophet, priest, and judge. The book of Samuel is a transitional book from a theocracy of people ruled and governed by God to a monarchy of people ruled by an earthly king. And in chapter 8 of Samuel, God's people demand a king. Not just a king, but a king that is like all the other nations that will, that will judge them and go to battle and fight their battles for them. They wanted to fit in. And they didn't want to be different. They, they were called to be different. God called them to be a holy people and to live in a holy way. To be set apart as God's own possession to worship the one true God, but they wanted to be like everybody else. Samuel told the people of Israel that if they pick their own king of their own choosing, that king will not only bring high taxation upon them, but a dictatorship over every aspect of their life. Chapter 8, verses 10 through 18. God had already given them a job description of what a king should look like in Deuteronomy 17. That he should be a man that follows after God, that reads God's law. But that's not the God they wanted. They wanted their own man, and they, God gave them the man. His name is Saul. God had given them the king they wanted. Even though God had ultimately chosen Saul, he was in part chosen of God, finally of God, for God's judgment. Because their decision for a king came from a desire and a motivation of idolatry. It was, it was a rejection of God. We saw that earlier. And in chapter 9, though, as this prophet and priest and judge Samuel goes out to anoint Saul, we saw in chapter 9 this, this providential and sovereign work of God. While Saul's looking for donkeys, he meets up with the prophet Saul. And in the morning, after they have uh, uh, go to the worship place and, and, and do sacrifices and they have dinner together, in the morning... Samuel tells Saul, meet me out of the city gates, and privately there, he anoints him in chapter 10, verse 1, as prince over his people, over God's people, Israel. And chapter 10, verse 1, makes it clear that although Samuel is doing the anointing, it is God himself who will set Saul apart. He will empower Paul, Saul to rule and lead over God's people. Not Saul's people, God's people. Chapter 10, verse 1. Last week, we looked at the signs of authentication that Samuel had told Saul will take place. I'm going to authenticate through these signs. God will authenticate through these signs your anointing as king. And after the signs came to pass, proved true to Saul, everything that Samuel had said by anointing him king, Samuel, at the end of chapter 10, summons the people together at Mitzbah, where he first rebukes them, reminding them that their decision for a king was really a rejection of God. But then he... If you remember from last week, he has a lot system that he calls all the tribes together. And by lot, they dwindle it down to Saul, a Benjamite. You remember? Nowhere to be found. He's hiding in the baggage claim area. And the Lord says, uh, the guy you're looking for, and which the lot fell on publicly, fell on. He's in the baggage area. Go get him. They go get him. He's tall and handsome. And everybody shouts out in chapter 10, verse 24, long live the king. Wonderful moment. But not everybody's happy. Chapter 10, verse 27, as, as chapter 10 closes, look there with me. But some worthless fellows said, hmm, how can this man save us? And they despised him, Saul, and brought him no presents. But he, Saul, 
held his peace. Saul held his peace. And as we move into chapter 11, we're actually going to see Saul, the first king of Israel, at his best. Although he's, he, he's the king, we're told that in chapter 10, verse 26, Samuel gathers everybody together at the end of chapter 10 and sends them all home. And he sends Saul home to Gibeah, where the tribe of Benjamin lived. And that's how 10 closes, chapter 10 closes. And verse, chapter 11 opens up, and Saul is summoned. He, he's summoned to step up to the plate. To, to act like a king is supposed to act. To, to act like his anointing. Because that's what kings do in those days. Kings fought the enemies of God. That's why he was anointed king. And what, what can we learn about these holy wars of the Old Testament? We are certainly not going to say that God has called the church to literally bear arms against non-believers. But family, we are at war. As we see this holy war played out in the Old Testament, we'll see Saul fighting against the Ammonites in a moment. We must realize that we too are in a holy war. We too are called to fight a battle, to fight with swords, to release captives and to destroy fortresses, to take up weapons, to have an arsenal of weapons to prepare to fight a battle. But Paul tells us in the New Testament that we're not waging war according to the flesh, 2 Corinthians 10. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, 12. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. The church is not to engage in a literal and physical war, but our weapons are warfare, he says, that have divine power to destroy strongholds, and, and we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience to Christ, 2 Corinthians 10. Listen to Ephesians 6 about battle. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers Authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand or withstand in the evil day and having done also to stand firm. Stand firm having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation, the word, excuse me, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times. We know that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be advanced by literal, physical violence on our part, but, but, there's a battle. We do not wage war with bullets and, and, and bombs and guns. <laughs> we do it with love and grace and gospel proclamation, right? But there is an enemy, and we must battle him. And, and as we engage, as we think through these, these wars, as we engage the, the culture, as we look to demonstrate the gospel in love and good deeds and justice and declare the gospel in the word of Christ, in an effort to bring a message of hope and salvation and reconciliation to the world. We must remember this lesson. We're in a battle. The victory cannot be won by worldly means, not by any human authority or human intelligence or human impressiveness. So I think it's important as we are a church on mission, demonstrating and declaring the gospel, that the gospel means there's a war. Our mission means there's a war. And we take the word of Christ, as the, the, the word of the gospel to an unbelieving world. We are engaging in a battle. Woodhouse in his commentary writes this. this is a great quote. Going to do battle is not how we like to think of our evangelistic efforts. The Bible language does not fit comfortably 
with our approaches to making Christ known. In many ways, the business world has replaced the battlefield as a source of categories to thinking about this work, living on mission. He says, gospel work is then not war, but commerce. We go to sell a product, not fight a battle. We are marketers, not soldiers. We have merchandise, not weapons. We face potential customers, not an enemy. We are out to expand our market share and increase our customer base, not to capture, defeat, and destroy a foe. We form a business plan, but not a battle plan. The conflict we we face arises from the competition in the marketplace of ideas where our product is not the only one offered, rather than the hostile wiles of an enemy. He writes, the language of war and weapons and battle is too extreme for the way we think about evangelism. He says, we are more like advertisers than fighters, end quote. Let that sink in. All of, us, all of this to say as we, as we look at this Old Testament holy war, let us, be, let us be reminded that we are not to take an aggressive outward stance of hostility and hatred and have a disposition of, of, of hostility, but we are, we are called and we must recognize that we are fighting fallen angels, a culture that's antithetical to the gospel, a world that is hostile to the gospel, that's our calling. So with that in mind, as we look at this four, four simple movements, first, and I think it's the longest, is the crises of the people. The people are in a crisis. Then we're going to look at the conduct of a farm boy. I'm calling him farm boy, even though it's Saul, because he's on the farm when he first comes to pass in chapter 11. And then the crusade, he gathers an army together, and they go on a crusade, and finally the confirmation, Paul, excuse me, Saul, you know, Paul is from Benjamin anyway, but that's another story, um, uh, the confirmation of a king. So let's look at first the crises. Chapter 10 closes, Saul is home. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, the Ammonite king, make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. Treaty with us, we'll serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said, on this one occasion, sounds like a plan, we'll, we'll treat you with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes. All right, sounds like a plan. And thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Right? Saul has been to some degree anointed king, but Saul has not yet stepped up. Now we have a crisis. And Saul's anointing of the Holy Spirit, empowered to do the work of a king to defeat God's enemies, now there's a chance for him actually to step up and do what kings do. Lead God's people into battle and defeat the enemies of God. The enemies this day are the Ammonites. Ammonites are a relative, distant relative of the Israelites, the Ammonites. The Ammonite kingdom comes from a man called Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites. He was born to Lot's daughter. If you remember, Abraham had a nephew, his name is Lot. Lot got drunk like an idiot and slept with two of his daughters. They had a son. His name is Ben-Ami. A lot going on in this context of this, this story. And I want to bring you into this historical context of what's going on. If you don't like history, I don't know what to tell you. But here we go. First thing you need to know about this story is Nahash, you see in chapter 1, his name means serpent, snake. Same one, Genesis 3. And you can't help but notice and can't help but see in this story his hissing, his slimy snake. We'll gauge it. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of you. We'll pull out all your right eyes. In fact, the word save, it brings us back to Genesis 3. He's a slippery and slimy snake. The word save and salvation is mentioned six times in chapter 9 and chapter 10. Three in chapter 9 and three times in chapter 10 is the word save or salvation. And here we see a new Adam in the Garden of Eden. We see Saul, the king against the serpent snake. We see the land, not Eden, but the promised land. 
And this is a type, what's called a typology. It's something that represents something else. Here's the king's savior, Saul, as a foreshadow of the true king, the true and better king in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will deliver all the nations from oppression and bondage and bring us back into paradise. The next thing you need to understand is the word treaty means covenant. It's the word covenant. And the Ammonites are threatening Jabesh Gilead, the land, which is part of Israel. The same Israel in chapter 10 said, long live the king. We're under God's covenant people, and now we have a king. And rather than say to the Ammonite, listen, oh, before you go any further, don't talk to us, talk to the king. We're in covenant with God, we have a covenant, uh, uh, and he has given us a king, and his name is Saul. They don't want to hear it. They're like, all right, listen, just give us some time, and um, we'll, we'll give ourselves to you. We'll, we'll, we'll covenant ourselves to this foreign king of the Ammonites. And the Ammonites are like, hey, that's great. That's a great idea. In fact, we'll gouge out your right eyes. Now, understand, culturally, historically speaking, when you gouge out a man's right eye, most people are, right, are right-sided. Are, are, a strong hand is their right hand. If you're a lefty here, I'm sorry, but most people are right-handed. You know who you are. You know where you've got to sit at the kitchen table. I have a brother. That's a lefty. He sits always at the end, so he doesn't knock everybody's when you're trying to eat. Anyway, sorry about that, but that's just true. If you're right-eyed, you can't with the bow. You're going to use your right eye, you can't shoot the bow. When you're right-eyed, you can't really wield a sword as well. And if your right eye is God's doubt, what do you have in your left hand? It's round, Captain America. What is it? Okay. If your right eye is plucked out, all you're seeing is the shield. You can't see anything else. You can't see anything coming from that side. So they knew what they were doing. It was common in that area. We're going to take your right eye out. In fact, really what we want to do is bring disgrace upon all Israel. Verse 3. The elders of Jabesh said, give us seven days, man. Give us a respite. We'll send some messages, see what we can find out. Not let's go get the king. If no one's there to save us, we'll just give ourselves up to you. When the messages came to Gibeah, where Saul is from Gibeah, I'm going to show you where that is in a minute. They reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept out loud. Jabesh Gilead, right? Jabesh Gilead, people from there came down to where Saul lives, in Gibeah, and people wept out loud. Now, if you can, um, maybe you could, I don't know if you could see this, how well you could see this. If you could shut the lights, show for me. This is important. I want to show you something. Oh. Let me see, make sure this is working. They said they put new batteries in it. Huh? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. You need this. There you go. There's a sound lady. Thank you. All right, so this, I, I want to show you this because it's a historically accurate uh, picture of what's going on here, and, and you, you'll see what I'm saying in a minute. Now, Gabash, Jabesh Gilead, where the Ammonites are, are on the east coast. Here, see, there's the Ammonites. Here's Jabesh Gilead. So they're ready. The Ammonites are going to take this land right here. They're on the doorstep, okay? Down here to the, to the west and south is Gibeah. That's where Saul is. Saul's down here, Gibeah. Jabesh is where the Ammonites are going to come. They send messages from here down to here where Saul lives is where the Benjamite, Benjamin clan is. And everybody starts weeping because of what's going on up here in the northeast. Now, say, what's so great about that? Let me tell you. Not long before this, in the book of Judges, people in this here Gibeah city there was a Levite that came to the city at Gibeah, where the Benjamites are, where Saul is from. And the Levite came into the city with his wife, his concubine. The city went crazy. And they said, give us this Levite, we, the men, and we want to violate the man, the Levite. And they're like, no, 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 you, you, you're not doing that. So what they do, they gave him his wife. And the people in Gibeah took the man's concubine, the end of Judges, and brutalized her all night long. The whole town, city, until she was dead in the morning. Didn't go well with the rest of the tribes. So the 11 tribes went against Gibeah right here and attacked the city for what they did. And they called for everybody to come together and take that city 
And guess who the only people that said we're not going to be a part of this? Jabesh Gilead. We're not going to be a part of this. So the other tribes go in. They go into where Saul is in, in, in Gibeah. They destroy the place. 300 soldiers run and hide. And then God says, listen, go up to Jabesh Gilead. I want you to go up to that city and teach them a lesson for not taking a vengeance uh, against Benjamites. Teach them a lesson. So they go back up there and they annihilate everyone except 400 girls that had never been married, virgins. And they take the 400 girls from Jabesh Gilead and they give them to the men in Gibeah, the 300 soldiers that ran, so that the tribe of Benjamin would continue on. So the virgins now are marrying men in Gibeah, where Saul is at, and having children. So when they hear that Jabesh Gilead is, is under siege and weep, it's because none is there. And Papa's there. There's a, there's a connection, an ancestry between those two cities. There's a real connection between the two. And they're saying, the, the, the city in which my family is from, where, where Nana and Nona are from and Papa are from, they're under siege. And, and they're weeping, verses 4 and 5, when they hear the news. Jabesh Gilead was under threat by King the Serpent to rip out their eyes, and there's weeping going on. So let me draw a principle for a moment. The enemy, our enemy, wants to render us useless. Our enemy wants to render us ineffective. Our enemy wants to place shame upon us so that we are not useful for the gospel. He's called Satan and the lies and the accuser of the brethren, children of God, you and I this morning, we have an enemy. Saul, Paul tells us in the New Testament that we should not be unaware of his schemes. The Bible teaches us that there are angels that worship God and serve God, but there are wicked angels called demons. And they fell with Satan, the, the real rebel one, against God. And now they, these de- demons serve their master Satan until the day of the Lord, and they'll finally face eternal damnation. Peter says, listen, be sober-minded. Be calm, be steady. That's what sober-minded means. Be, be thinking and be watchful. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Resist him, stand in the faith, in the gospel, in the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection and righteousness of Christ. Resist him in the faith. In the faith. That's not what they're doing here. What they're doing here, they're not trusting in God. They're not calling on God. They're too, they're too quick to say, all right, we'll go send some messages around. And you know what? If nobody comes, we'll just serve you. Bow down to the culture. James tells us, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Notice, submit to God. Draw near to God, and resist the devil. And he will flee. You can't have one without the other. You can't fight the battle on your own. You've got to submit, therefore, to God. Draw near to God. As he draws near to you and resist the enemy. Our warfare may not be bullets and bombs. But let me tell you, the warfare that we fight is real. We're not charged with conquering lands, but declaring the gospel. To make disciples of all nations. Again, our warfare consists of weapons of righteousness. And we wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Our warfare, warfare have divine powers destroy spiritual strongholds. Our weapons are spiritual because the kingdom, our kingdom, under King Jesus, he said, is not of the world. But there is a kingdom, listen, and there is a mission. And there are weapons. And we need them because the proclamation of the gospel is war on our enemies. As Christians, we who are God's as, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's called us into relationship with him and he sends us out on mission. And the missio Dei, the mission of God, demonstrating and declaring the gospel, we engage, therefore, in spiritual warfare. Satan hates Christians. Satan hates, the, hates uh, uh, this anti, uh, the, hates us and, and loves this anti-God ideology. 
Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world and its anti-gospel culture is hostile to King Jesus. And our call is not to be violent, but to be militant against our spiritual enemy, Satan and all his emissaries. The people recognized the wars at their doorstep, but they did not seek the one who could save them. They weren't trusting and resting in the work and covenant relationship with their God. We see the crises. We see the, the, the crises of the people. Look, look, at, look at Saul. This is wonderful. Verse 5. Now Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul was coming from. And, and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news. They told him the news that uh, the men of Jabesh said. Verse 6. And the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And listen, his anger was greatly kindled. Saul appears to do what he was, went home to do. He's, 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 he's caring for the farm and the land. He's actually working the farm and the land. He's, he, he is plowing the fields. Some people say that's, that's, that's a humble king right there. He's anointed king, but he's working on the fields. And he hears the cry of the people. And, and, his, and his role will be king. And this is the moment. And he's like, what's wrong? And after he hears the news... Look what it says. It said, the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and immediately he becomes angry. Do you see the connection? Do you see the connection? This was a God-stirred-up rage, clearly fixed at the threat against the people of God in Jabesh Gilead by the king. The Spirit rushed, and he became angry. And you'll find, especially in the book of Judges, You'll see this connection between the Spirit of God, his wrath against evil. And Judges is prominent in Judges. Um, the Spirit drove the Judges to, to go and, and fight against the oppressors of God's people, Samson and other people in the book of Judges. And now the Spirit of God comes upon Saul, right? And, and with divine indignation, he's empowered to be this military leader, <laughs> The author wants you to see that something's going to happen, man. Something powerful, miraculous is going to happen when the Spirit of God rushes on God's people and then God's people are being oppressed. There's victory going to happen. Victory's going to happen. He had already experienced this earlier. Remember in chapter 10, verse 10, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul and he prophesied. Now God's empowering him. And family, let me tell you, if God is calling you to something, if God is calling you to a service, uh, calling you to his purposes, God will empower you to do it. Not by your own strength, but by his strength, for his glory. And God is angry at sin. You may not hear, maybe that's the first time you ever heard that, that God is a God of love and a God of wrath. God is a God of love. The scripture teaches us that God, the creator, who knows and loves each of us, is angry because of human sin. Exodus 22, do not take advantage of the widow and the orphan. If you do, they will cry out to me. I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. In fact, the most famous, I think one of the most famous verses of scripture is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Well, read the whole chapter. In that chapter, he also talks about being condemned and how the wrath of God remains. So, so God is both love and wrath. God is both angry and compassionate. And you're like, well, God has this split personality. No, not, no, that's not what he's saying. God, our creator, our provider, who loves us, who created us with an everlasting love, gets angry when his creation is abused, is vandalized, defaced, and devalued. And some people say, well, how could God, a God of love, be angry? If God is angry, is he not loving? And I would say, how could a loving God not be angry? 
when he sees the brokenness and the twistedness and the evil of this world. You see, anger, and I mentioned this before, is tied with love, linked to love. If you don't get angry at anything, it's really a failure to love, right? It's just anger and love. They go together. Just If you're married for more than 24 hours, you know that to be true. Anger is a natural response when things we love, the people we love, the things we love are threatened. Now, the problem is for us, for you and me, is that sin has twisted the image of God in our life. We are marred, we are stained and tainted by sin, and our propensity now is for evil and selfishness. And we get angry for the wrong reasons, and we are angry because we don't get what we want, how we want it, when we want it. So we need to be careful. Not all anger is sin. The Bible says be angry, but what? Sin not. But here, the anointing, the, uh, the spirit comes upon Saul, and he is righteously angry. Look what he does in verse 7. He takes a yoke of oxen, which I found out means two. I'm not a farm boy. I'm learning a lot about farms while I'm studying Samuel. He takes a yoke of oxen, cuts them in pieces, and sends them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, and he sends them with a message. Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. It's a calculated move. Remember the story of Jashbash, Gilead, and Gibeah with, with the brutalization of that woman? Well, when she died, they cut her up and sent her to all the cities of Israel and said, look what the Benjamites did to her. And if you don't come out and avenge that city, that's what's going to happen to you. Now, Saul does really the same thing. And he cuts up the oxen. He says, listen, whoever doesn't come and meet us and fight against the Ammonite, so shall be done to you. Now, let me set the record straight. For those of you who think that it was the Italians were the ones who started cutting animals' heads and putting them in beds, it wasn't us. And it worked. Verse 7b, C. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. You think? This is what's going to happen to you. You know, we already know what happened to the city of Jabesh Gilead, who didn't come out and avenge the, against the Benjamites. So I think the principle we will walk away with is lock up your farm animals at night if you have any. No, that's not really. But <laughs> believers who are born of God's Spirit, empowered by God's Spirit, will care about people. They will mourn with those who mourn. They will weep with those who weep. When they see problems and they can help, they're willing to get involved. They're relying on God's Spirit to serve others, not by their own strength and power, Zechariah. Not by might, not by my power, but by, by my Spirit, says the Lord. Ralph David, in his wonderful commentary, says this. Israel cannot afford to miss the point. Salvation came not because Israel had a king, but because the king had Yahweh's spirit. It is not the institution of kingship, but the power of the spirit that brings the deliverance, end quote. You have the crises of the people. You have the conduct of the farm boy. Now look at this crusade. Verse 7, again. He takes the yoke, cuts it into pieces, sends it throughout the territory, uh, and he says, you've got to come out. The dread of the Lord come upon people. Verse 8. He mustered them at Bezek. The people of Israel were 300,000. And the men of Judah, 30. See that? 30,000. Verse 9. And they said to the messengers who came down from Jabesh. They sent to the messengers. Listen. Thus shall you say, go back to Jabesh Gilead. And tell them, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, midday. You shall have your salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Verse 10, therefore the men of Jabesh said to the Ammonites, all right, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Then the next day Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning and watch, the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. You see the strategic plan. It's always good to have a plan. 
Saul gathers the people, 330,000 men. He tells the messenger, go back to Jabesh and tell them this. Trust God. Trust God. Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you're going to have your salvation. Go and give the city the gospel. Salvation will come. It will be yours. And when Jabesh hears the gospel, the message of salvation, they believe it. They receive it gladly. They chose faith rather than fear. They're they're so confident in the salvation message that was brought back to the city that they turn to the Ammonites and they say, all right, tomorrow we'll give ourselves up to you. Literally, we will go to you. We'll go, tomorrow, we'll go to you. Little ambiguity there. The Ammonites are thinking, oh, really? Great. We're going to pluck out, pluck out your right eye like we said we're going to do, and we're going to have victory, and you're going to be our slaves. No, what they meant, we're going to come out to you, and salvation will be given to us. And Saul has a great plan. I mean, think about it for a minute. You're the Ammonites. You know you're going to destroy the city. There's nobody coming to rescue them. And they say, tomorrow we're yours. What are you going to go home and do? Celebrate, right? A good plan. You go and celebrate. Stay up all night. And what does, Paul, what does Saul do? <laughs> they drop their guard. And Saul comes in, again, another true and tried tactic. Free companies to attack and surround the enemy. Gideon did it. Abimelech did it. There's three of them. They come in and they surround the city. And it's dawn time. It's the morning watch, somewhere between 2 and 6 a.m. And they attack the Ammonite camp and slaughter the enemy. So successful was their attack that no unified group was left. Everyone was killed. Yet with all this strategic planning going on, the message... We'll come out to you, that message, um, the attack of the men, all the men that came together, we'll do it at dawn. All the strategic planning that went on, I submit to you that the greatest weapon they had and the greatest tactical weapon they used is found in chapter, excuse me, in verse 7, right in the middle of verse 7. Look what it says with me. Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel. So shall it be done to his oxen. See? Saul and, not Saul alone, Saul and Samuel. We've been saying all along that this transition from theocracy to monarchy does not mean that God and his word takes a back seat. That God will always be their ultimate king. God will always be the king. And very soon in Saul's life, he's going to disregard the word. He's going to put aside Samuel. He's not going to listen to Samuel. He's going to do his own thing to his own demise and downfall. But the Spirit of God gives Saul the leadership and the power to organize this plan and to overtake his enemies. But the power is to be exercised in obedience to God's word. Samuel, the Lord's true prophet, sets divine limits. The word of God cannot be separated from the work of the Spirit. You have Saul, empowered by the Spirit. You have Samuel, the prophet, and the word of God. And throughout all of Scripture, we see the Spirit of God as closely connected to the word of God. Even go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. Isaiah 59, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, out of the mouth of your children, or the mouth of your children's children, thus saith the Lord. When Jesus walked into the synagogue, and they hand him a scroll, he opened up to Isaiah 61, and he read it, and applied it to himself. And he said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the reason is he has anointed me to what? Open my mouth and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Word and spirit. Even in Matthew 10, Jesus says, I'm sending you out as as sheep uh, in the midst of wolves, as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise. 
Be wise as serpent, innocence of dove. They're going to deliver you. They're going to flog you. They're going to drag you before governors. But don't be worried. Don't be anxious what you should speak, what you should say. For what you'll say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The Spirit will come. Acts chapter 1. You receive power at Pentecost to do what? To be witnesses of Jesus. To proclaim the gospel. To speak the good news. The faith that was exhibited by, by the Israelites here in Jabesh Gilead that day was based on God's promise of his salvation, of his deliverance, of his rescue, as indicated by God's spirit that came upon Saul in power. And also, listen, the presence of Samuel the prophet who's proclaiming the word of God. And we talk about this presence of the Holy Spirit, the work of faith in our lives is dwelling with us. And many times it's that part of us that's, that's, that's that experiential, that mystical aspect of our faith. In some conservative Orthodox circles like myself, we, we, we don't really talk about that that often. We preached through in John. It was very enlightening for me. It's just as real as anything else. He's the third person of the Trinity. Yes, it can be subjective, but, but the word, when the word of God gives boundaries to the work of the Spirit, because the Spirit's not going to go against the things in which he authored, we can walk with God. We can put on the full armor of God. We can step up like Saul did in victory against the devil's shots at us Spurgeon said this if you do not understand a book by a departed writer you are unable to ask him his meaning but the spirit who inspired holy scripture lives forever he delights to open up the word to those who see his instruction end quote Jesus said when he comes the spirit he will guide you into all truth he will make known what I have made known and he will glorify me we have parameters we have the word of God but also takes the empowering of the Spirit of God. Paul says it is the Spirit of God is God-breathed or exhaled by God. Peter talks about it being uh, men spoke from God who are carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see the work of the Spirit and the work of the Word. The conduct, the crusade, and finally we look at the confirmation. Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, Right? They had just conquered the land. They just beat up on the Ammonites. They, they took them by force. They conquered God's enemies. And the people said to Samuel, notice they're still talking to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men to us that we may put him to death. In other words, who are those guys in chapter 10, verse 27, that said, this guy can't save us? In fact, they despised him, it says, and they gave him no gifts. Who are those people? Because Saul just stepped up and did what he had to do. Let's put him to death. Treason. Paul says in verse 13, not a man shall be put to death this day. Do not put him to death for treason. Not this day. This day, today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Very reminiscent again of chapters 10, verse 27, where Saul had uh, uh, held his peace against his enemies. Death is the penalty for treason. And Saul is shining right now. I'll give him his props. I'll give him his props. He, he, he is saying, I did what I had to do, and we won. No one's going to die today. And God, uh, Saul shows grace. He is humble. He says, the Lord had given us the victory. The Lord has rescued us. The Lord had delivered us. The Lord had saved his people. And Saul's encouraging people, look, trust in the Lord. Let's not put anybody to death right now. For treason, trust in the Lord. Verse 14. And Samuel said to the people, come on. Samuel's like, all right, listen, no one's going to die. Let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and, verse 14, and they were there and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Samuel's still leading. And the question that people uh, are asking on this passage is, what kingdom are they renewing? Are they renewing the kingdom of Saul as king? Are they renewing the kingdom of God? Are they renewing the Israelite nation as a people? Or is this Saul's kingdom? Is this kind of like the final inauguration? Well, let me tell you what I think. I think, yeah, Saul's inauguration as king has reached its pinnacle for sure. 
Yes, the nation is secure. Yes, they have great victory over their enemies. Yes, they're feeling good and they're feeling right now secure in the land. But I think the narrator has given us some clues that Saul's kingly leadership for Israel at the moment was still under the authority of the Lord our God. The theocracy had not after all, been rejected at the moment. And Samuel is not speaking of renewing the new kingdom or, or the inauguration of the installed king, but renewing God's kingdom. God's kingdom with God as king under the leadership of King Saul. In his appointment of Saul, God was still acting as Israel's kings. Although the people had rejected God, God was still, by his grace, still their king and their lord. And not willing to surrender his people over to a worldly king. So the people do see Saul as king. But it's more than that. They're renewing the kingdom of God. And it's interesting. They go to Gilgal. Gilgal is the place where Joshua had marched into the promised land. That was promised by God after Moses died. And where they make their pact in Gilgal. They, they said God is with us. God will be for us. And that's exactly what they're doing here. And they're offering peace offerings. The peace offering is, is an offering you give to God, and after the offering, you sit and you fellowship together. It's a voluntary offering where there's a meal, just like we do today. We share meals together. There's relationship, religious celebration around a meal. The men of Israel are rejoicing. They have a new king. Saul is happy to be their new king who won the victory. He's been installed as a type of king who who obeys the word of God. He's given Samuel and the Lord his props and gives God glory in his victory. The story, family, listen, opens up with Samuel. He's still the judge. He's still the prophet. But there is no savior king. Saul steps up. He takes the role as the savior king. But you know what? Listen, it's not going to last because no human king No human prophet, no human priest will ever completely obey the will and the word of God unless God himself becomes human. Jesus, God, the son, the word who became flesh and tabernacles among us will do nothing contrary to the word of God. He will speak the word. He will submit to the word. He is the true and better prophet who who fights as the ultimate savior king king of kings lord of lords who intercedes as our high priest shedding his blood offering himself up a single sacrifice for sin and then he sits down at the right hand of the father sacrifice completed and accepted by the father this story family should listen should remind us that what god did through saul that day is a pale shadow of what god did to the great enemy of sin death and hell, and Satan himself, when Jesus, King Jesus, died on the cross for our sins. And when we go with the gospel into battle, that's how we started, right? Going into the gospel into battle, we only go knowing that the decisive battle and victory has already been won. Good Friday, Sunday morning, victory. His blood was shed. The payment for our sin debt was paid. The enemy has, fact, in fact, fallen. We need not to be afraid. And Saul cried out, told the city, listen, salvation today. God has worked salvation this day. And God has worked salvation this day in your midst. God has worked salvation by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We, 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 we don't have, a, we have an enemy. He's not, not a physical enemy. And the gospel proclamation cannot and must not be physically violent. However, we must realize that we do not take the gospel into the culture, a culture that is what? Eager to hear it. Many times we face hostility against God's purposes and God's people. And the enemy is sin and unbelief and pride and ignorance and rebellion. And the proclamation is war against the enemy and his foes. And the New Testament uses this language. But listen, the good news is the war has been raged and waged And Christ won. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave is good news. Just as Saul was proclaiming, we proclaim to you today. Now listen to this as we close. There are some people in Saul's day that were guilty of treason. They were guilty of treason. They were deserving death. And he says, do not destroy them. But it was our Lord Jesus Christ 
who took our punishment and wrath we rightly deserve for our sins who looks down from the cross of those who put him there and says, Father, forgive them. And he offers forgiveness to you this morning. Don't let your enemy, don't let our enemy keep you from seeing and savoring, loving and treasuring and surrendering to Jesus. If you're not a Christ follower today, listen to this verse. 2 Corinthians 4, it says, The gospel, the good news of Jesus, death on the cross, resurrection from the grave, for your sins, for your justification. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In that case, the God of this world, the enemy, Satan, and his emissaries, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the imago, the image of God. Don't let the enemy blind you. Let's stand with our conquering Savior King. Let us not fear our enemy, but with weapons of righteousness, fight the battle with the sword to release captives, destroy fortresses, not waging war according to the flesh, but weapons of righteousness, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, and putting on the full armor of God. And our warfare is, is, is all about taking down divine power to take down and destroy strongholds. To destroy arguments of every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. As we sing this last song, we're going to sing a song and it's a mighty fortress. And if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, now is the time, today is the day. If you're battling with the enemy, now is the time, now is the day. Is not to stand in your own strength, stand in the victory of Jesus because he has got you covered. And though this world with devil fills should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. A mighty fortress is our God. His kingdom is forever. Father, we will not stand on our own strength. We don't have it. We will not stand in our own power. We don't have it. But we will stand with the King of kings and the Lord of lords who in our place died a brutal death, who in our place was buried, and because of his resurrection from the grave, announcing to the world, victory belongs to Jesus. So, Father, help us to worship Jesus today. And for those who may not know him, Father, we pray right now that your spirit would open up their heart, their mind. They would be unveiled. Their hearts would be unveiled to see the beauty and incalculable worth and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Father, help us to stand, not in arrogance, but in love with you in demonstrating the gospel and declaring the good news to this world who so desperately needs to hear it. We ask all this in Jesus' name.